Welcome to episode 27 of Mike's Notes. Today, three takeaways from Jack Schwager's Master in Business conversation. Schwager joined Barry Ritholtz on the Bloomberg Masters in Business podcast to talk about traders, trading, and big ideas that went between the two. The interview covered a lot of ground, but we're only going to look at three quotes from that episode in my version of the podcast. Number one, what backup plans have in common with Daniel Kahneman and the Fast and the Furious movie franchise? Number two, does a tailwind propel you forward or does it inflate your ego? And number three, waiting for the right pitch helps during an at-bat. Two examples we'll look at in that section are Louis C.K.'s show Horace and Pete and Facebook's failed phone. Ready? One. The, you know, I started on a desk with a, uh, the head of the desk was a Marine jungle combat instructor. This is a big, badass guy. And, <laughs> you know, he had the same exact line, but he would always couch it in Marine terms. He said, before you take, you're going to take a village, you're going to take a house, you're going to take a hill. You have to know we're getting in, we're getting out, but we have to know what's our exit. And if that exit is blocked, what's our plan B and what's our plan C? Right. You always have, if you want to get out alive, you have to know what your exit strategy is and what the alternatives are if something mucks up that, that Perfect first analogy, strategy. Yeah. Here we have Ritholtz and Jack Schweger talking about optionality and keeping your options open. And so Ritholtz saw this when he began and his early instructor said, you need a plan B and a plan C uh, to get out of any kind of situations. And having options like this is the chance to choose something else when the time comes. In finance, it's the right to buy something at one price when you expected or observed uh, another higher price. At Disney, it's the park hopper tickets that give you the option to pay to visit more than one park in a day. Exit strategies, whether for Marines or for traders, or for vacation goers, um, is the list of ways to get out of a situation. Having a backup plan fits nicely with the military maxim that two is one and one is none. But plan B's can be dangerous temptresses. It can be a port in a storm, but a place you don't want to be. Mark Marin said about being a comedian, quote, if you have a plan B, you're just a hobbyist, end quote. Fellow comedian Jordan Peele said he moved to Chicago and, quote, there's not going to be a fallback, end quote. So how do we reconcile this idea of not burning the boats and having other options versus landing on a continent and burning the boats and not giving anyone a plan B or a backup chance or anything else to do? And here is where I think we can get into the idea so that Daniel uh, Kahneman often researches. That is when we should think fast, and when we should think slow. Here's Kahneman. If you've had a lot of experience in a particular domain, you can trust yourself in that domain, if you've been able to learn from your mistakes, which isn't always true. Otherwise, in big decisions, in really big decisions, you might want, uh, you might want to slow down. And that is almost the only advice that we have for people. 
when things get really big and you're really not sure, slow down. When things get really big and you're not sure, slow down. Kahneman's research suggests that we operate in two systems, like gears on a car. System one is our automatic and reactive system. It's fast, and it lets us catch falling things, cook a familiar dinner, or drive a car. System two is our more effortful style of thinking. System one is kids playing Pokemon. System two is adults playing Pokemon. Kahneman's research is powerful because we tend to run in system one when we sometimes should run in system two. Having a plan B is a way to use system two thinking before you have to make the choice. It's using system two at another time and then implementing it when you might be mistakenly running in system one. If you can have a backup plan before you need one, then you'll be more likely to use it. When things move fast and are unfamiliar, we should slow down in our decision making, just like a trader or a jungle combat veteran would think. Uh, warfare and trading are both very complex and complicated situations that change all the time. They're not things that you can build a lot of familiarity with. You can compare that to firefighters who Kahneman found out are able to build a lot of familiarity with a fire. So there's a difference between being in a fire and being in war and being a trader in the way that we're describing these different kinds of thinking. You need a lot of experience in situations where different variables are consistent and repeated so that you can learn to uh, react in a certain way so that your automatic system makes good choices for you. If we are in a fast-moving, unfamiliar situation with large possible losses, a plan B can be really helpful. Plan B? Plan B, we need a plan C, D, E. We need more alphabets. That clip from Fast and the Furious 6 isn't the best example. I mean, to those characters chasing bad guys in fast cars might be a system one activity at this point. After four movies, you probably can go with your gut in whatever the situation is. They don't need backup plans, do they? Well, backup plans are terrible for movies, but good for real life. Much of life is complex. We don't know all the variables. The footing shifts, the conditions change, unless you live and breathe something, like firefighters that Kahneman researched, who have a very good intuitive system one for reactions in dangerous buildings, you're probably better off creating backup plans. Two. If your approach is just to to just go long uh, and stay long, and it's and you're making and you're doing well, and it's in a bull market. All you can assume is you've been long during a bull market. You have no idea what's going to happen when you have a bear market. Here, Schwager is talking about how to figure out whether your system works, whether or not you have the right skills. And he added that bull markets can go on for years. And we can think about this if we step back. We can say, okay, did, um, did I do well because I did well or because there was a rising tide that sort of lifted all boats? It's hard to separate this luck or conditions from skill, especially in a changing landscape. Michael Mobison suggested you use inversion to figure this out. The amount you can fail on purpose, Mobison said, corresponds to the amount of skill involved in a game. As a parent, I can see this skill in every game, race or contest with my kids. Everyone lets their kids win sometimes, and so games where you let your kids win, games like tennis or races in the pool or contests to see who can hold your breath the longest 
all require more skill than luck because you can lose on purpose. At the other end of the spectrum are things that lean more on luck than skill. My favorite example from this is when a 12-year-old won the 2015 NCAA basketball pool at ESPN. The story only really made the news because the kid was 12 and signed up under his dad's email address. So he didn't get all of the prizes that ESPN had promised because he was under 18. But with 30 grand in prizes, it seems like this contest would attract a certain amount of skill rather than luck. But here we can apply Mobison's question, can I lose on purpose? Well, you can try, but it's hard. I've been in a few March Madness pools won by people who choose their winners based on color or geographic locations or places that they visited. Clearly, there is a more even mix of skill and luck when it comes to an NCAA betting pool. So with this idea of inversion, with this idea to separate how much skill and how much luck are in each situation, we can frame the other part of that, and that is the rising tide. A bull market, the 90s in Silicon Valley. No matter your skill level during these conditions, everyone was a winner. It's like having a tailwind. You don't know how much is your skillful navigation and how much the conditions are helping you. When asked to give investing advice, Orrin Hoffman said that, quote, None of your listeners should take advice from me on investing. I've been a very active investor in the last eight years, and if you were a very active investor in the Valley, 100% of them did really well, end quote. So Hoffman recognizes that he had a tailwind. He had a rising tide that helped him succeed really well. Buffett compared this to being a duck on a lake, and he wrote to early investors that their duck, that is Buffett, should rise faster than the tide, which was the market. If they couldn't, in Buffett words flap their wings some, then the investors should take their money elsewhere. The rising tide shouldn't be avoided, though. It can be really helpful. It can be a great catalyst for things. Damon John says that he was starting FUBU because he noticed there was something else bubbling up. He noticed hip-hop culture. That rising tide could lift him up as he figured things out. John's appearance on the TV show Shark Tank suggests that he, in Buffett's words, flapped his wings along with the rising tide. How do we figure out the role of skill and luck on a rising or falling tide? Time helps, as one filter. Schweiger said, quote, There's always luck involved, but the longer you go, the less luck will win out, end quote. Others have said that you can always compare your situation to comparable conditions, and you can always look in time to find comparable conditions, uh, depending on what kind of variable you want. Your strategy may work now, but will it work in five years or five years ago? One current head-scratcher that I see is the sale of trucks. The top three selling vehicles in June 2016 in the United States were all trucks. The Ford F-Series sold 71,000 trucks. That's a lot of trucks. I remember when gasoline was $5 and people couldn't unload their trucks quick enough. Add in that we have cheap financing right now for dealers, and it makes sense. This is a high tide for trucks. But if I were a truck salesman, I would try to keep in mind that it may not be my personal skill selling trucks. Rather, it's the rising tide of cheap gas and stable financing. This idea of rising tides leads us to our final point. If we can seize a rising tide, like Damon John did, or our current imaginary truck salesman is doing, or Orrin Hoffman, we can hit a home run. 3. 
One that one that comes up all the time is patience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody like Jim Rogers has a great line. He says, "I I don't do anything until there's there's money lying in a corner of the floor, and all I have to do is go and pick it up." Right. So yeah, yeah, patience just to wait for something that's like a real setup, you know, a real fat pitch. As Schwager tells Ritholtz what he thinks a key characteristic is, he uses the baseball analogy of fat pitch, and he's not the only one. Ted Williams described in his book, The Science of Hitting, that the most important thing uh, for a hitter is to wait for the right pitch. And that's exactly the philosophy I have about investing. Wait for the right pitch. Yeah, and wait for the right, uh, wait for the right deal. And, and it will come. It's the key to investing. That was Warren Buffett talking about Ted Williams and his book, The Art of Hitting. And that was from an interview Buffett did a number of years ago. And he said that book was really influential to him about waiting for the right pitch. Buffett has said in other places that he could help everyone succeed more if he gave them a punch card with 20 slots. And you could only do 20 investments and then you would be done. That would force people to slow down and wait until the timing and the conditions were right and to have patience to seize the right opportunity. Someone that I think seized the right opportunity was Louis C.K. when he decided to make his show Horace and Pete a show that's an investment that Buffett would probably love. Louis had the idea for Horace and Pete for a while. He had kicked around the format in his head after seeing the stage play set for television. Louis wrapped up a season of his FX show, Louis, and started to write. He wrote two episodes and then reached out to Steve Buscemi. Here's what he told Charlie Rose. Quote, If I had come up with this idea a year before, it wouldn't have existed. But he had just come off this big show and I said, What are you doing? And he said, nothing, I'm looking for stuff to do. And I said, do you want to do a series with me? And he said, yes, sure. And I said, we'll play brothers. And he goes, yeah, okay, end quote. And so CK is finding Buscemi right at the right time. He's got the right conditions. He had the right uh, patience, whether on purpose or accidentally, to have this good actor. And he sort of accumulated all the actors that way. Louis would write a part, and then he would go to the person he really wanted to play that part, like Jack Nicholson. And when that person would turn him down, he would go on to someone else who he thought would be good for that part. He wasn't in a hurry to get this show made. He was focused on finding the right people. This moment for Louis was a fat pitch moment. Note that he couldn't have done this show, Horace and Pete, if he were committed to a movie that he had to do. As it turns out, the season of the year that Louis filmed Horace and Pete. He was scheduled to do a movie, but he was able to get out of that commitment because he had enough career capital to shuffle the decks because this better idea came around, this idea for Horace and Pete. It's going to work out for Louis. The show was nominated for two Emmy Awards, and Louis has plans to sell it to a streaming service or network down the line. He did the three things that Schwager suggested we do for our investments. First, Louis had a plan B. If things didn't work out for the show, he admitted that he could go back out on tour and make back the money he took out as a loan to make the show. Second, Louis focused on his skills, writing, acting, directing, and editing the show. Plus, like Damon John, it's a rising tide for streaming entertainment creators. And number three, Louis also got the timing right because he had patience. He was at a point in his career with a lot of career capital, the right skills, and eagerness from people like Netflix or Hulu or other services for content. An example of a situation that didn't get these things right was the Facebook phone. 
I only had the idea for the Facebook phone in this episode of the podcast because I saw the Amazon subsidized Blue R1 HD smartphone getting great reviews. And who can argue with a $50 smartphone where you just pop a new SIM card into it and you're off and running? This works financially for Amazon because they can advertise on the phone. The home screen that used to hold pictures of your kids now holds pictures of kibbles. Amazon is a good advertiser with lots of data. But Facebook? Oh man, Facebook? Facebook's client is advertisers. Those are the people being served. This isn't awful. Better ads should be a win-win. And if Facebook knows I like books by Daniel Kahneman, and books by Michael Lewis, which I do, then seeing an ad for the Michael Lewis book about Daniel Kahneman is a win-win. I find something I love, Facebook sells a good advertisement, it's a good fit. Now imagine that sort of a win-win relationship on a phone. Imagine Facebook, the place you post about movies, relationships, politics, funny cat videos, who your friends are, more funny cat videos. Imagine that's the company that has all your metadata. Where you are and when is the Fort Knox of advertising. And advertisers are still trying to get in, much like Wiley Coyote. With about as much success. Facebook tried a phone, but it didn't work. In an interview, Jamal Palihapitiya told Kara Swisher that the phone didn't work because... Because I made it difficult for Mark to say yes. Okay, what exactly does that mean? But what I didn't calculate was the cost of what that meant at that point in that company's life cycle. And specifically what I mean is when push came to shove, I had been negotiating with Intel and AT&T and all this stuff, and we had this amazing plan in place. It still would have cost Facebook a billion dollars to do what I wanted to do, which was a big bet. It was a hugely disruptive idea and go to market. The Mm -hmm. go to market was very expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. So that seems like a lot of money. It's a billion dollars. But we see that Louis C.K. made a similar size bet for him. He took out a loan for millions of dollars, and he was just one person, and he was making a TV show. Facebook was this big company that was pushing through all this data. They were the darling of the ball. The problem was that it wasn't good timing to make that kind of a bet. The problem was Facebook was still private, and it barely had a billion of cash in the balance sheet. It's a wrong timing. Well, Mark would have had to go public a year earlier. And I think in hindsight, he would probably say it probably wouldn't have mattered which year we went public. But at the time, it was a really important thing, and there was this whole culture developing in Silicon Valley about not going public and being private and you know all this stuff, which ultimately I consider now window dressing. Right. Um, but at the time... So, Palihapitiya says that they could have gone public a year earlier. What they also could have done was waited to do the phone a year later. Facebook has, of course, since gone public, and the attitude about tracking is more open. Today, in 2016, people don't mind being tracked in the same way they used to. It's an acceptable trade-off. My easy pass knows when and where I drive on a toll road. My Fitbit tracks my steps, my sleep patterns, and my activity level. Cookies on my computer know what websites I've been to, and Google serves up relevant ads. We check in on Facebook and send geo-filters on Snapchat. People are so much more open to sharing data and being tracked if it means a better experience. So what's the difference between Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, 
who missed on the Facebook phone. And Louis C.K., who's running his own shop, but looks to have a success with his show Horace and Pete. I think there's one answer. It's age. My guess is that Louis has better pattern recognition skills than Zuckerberg, and can better wait for the fat pitch. Louis succeeded and failed as a stand-up. He's had successful shows and canceled ones. He's been married and not married. Louis understands when to act and when to wait. Zuckerberg doesn't have the same pattern recognition. He saw the value in mobile, but jumped in too early. He knows this. It's why reading is such a priority for him. In 2015, he shared his book club with people on Facebook and wrote, quote, I've found reading books very intellectually fulfilling. Books allow you to fully explore a topic and immerse yourself in a deeper way than most media today, end quote. Books are a shortcut to pattern recognition. Jack Schwager pointed this out. The man we started this interview with told Barry Ritholtz, quote, I'm only profitable as a trader because I've just spoken to so many people that have so much experience, end quote. So Schwager admits that his pattern recognition skills are in part due to talking to other people. Trent Griffin wrote, quote, As a manager, you can't review everything. In my experience, the best managers know when they smell something rotten and drill down when they sense it. And when they sense something great, they drill down so they can optimally fertilize it, end quote. Pattern recognition works because it optimizes time, money, and opportunity cost. If you know that restaurants with dirty windows probably have dirty kitchens, you won't eat at them. If you know human beings can be irrational, you won't build models that make them rational. If you know you feel better after a long walk, you take more long walks to feel better. That's all pattern recognition about waiting for a fat pitch, waiting for the right opportunity, waiting for the moment to strike. The biggest obstacle to building good pattern recognition skills is that it often takes time to build those things. Anyone who is an athlete knows the, that it takes time to get certain moves down and to learn to act in certain ways. It all takes time. The good part is, is that for intellectual things, to things like Warren Buffett investing, or Louis C.K. creating a show, or Facebook jumping in too early, is that you can read to build that pattern recognition. Reading is the shortcut. As Otto von Bismarck wrote, quote, Only a fool learns from his own mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. End quote. Today we talked about three things. The first was plan B's are options to do other things. The bigger the risk, the more options you should have going into it because it's hard to make decisions in the heat of the battle. Second was rising tides lift all boats, but as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, we see who was swimming naked. Try to figure out if your success is a tide or a tailwind or something intrinsic to you. And number three, Patience for fat pitches is important for baseball, and it's a good metaphor for life. The longer you can focus and wait for the right pitch, often the bigger payoff you'll get. Thanks for listening to episode 27 of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.